Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 14 of the Unsunday Show. I believe it's episode 14. When I get in the double digits, you know, the math gets a little harder. So, you know, you got to be patient with me there. Math never was my strong suit. But yeah, this is episode 14, and I want to welcome you to episode 14 of the End Sunday Show. I really appreciate appreciate you guys coming back and uh, giving a listen to this show. My stats are headed upward, and that's really encouraging for me, so I do appreciate it. In this episode, I want to continue our conversation centered around John Zen's book, A Church Building Every Half Mile. And I want to get to that here in just a moment, but before we do... I want to talk a little bit about the church. I want to talk a little bit about the ecclesia and what the assembly looks like in the New Testament. And I can't think of much of a better place to go than 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul has his uh, dialogue there about spiritual gifts within the assembly, spiritual gifts within the church. And it seems to me like that would be a really good place to start. Because we're going to be able to extract some things uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that will add to our conversation that we're about to have. So what I would like to do is read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, read the chapter in its entirety, and then comment along the way or come back and comment uh, after I'm done, depending on how the Spirit leads in this thing. So let's start in uh, verse 1 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and I'm reading from the ESV simply because that's what's in front of me. That's not necessarily my favorite translation. I don't really know what my favorite translation is. When I spent a couple of years learning New Testament Greek, that became my favorite version. Of course, it's not a translation. It's, you know, the New Testament in the raw. And so I still have that as a tool that I can fall back on. Admittedly, my Greek vocabulary from Koine Greek isn't that good anymore. You don't, you know, it's like anything else. If you don't use it, you tend to lose it. But I can still go back and read through, you know, portions of the New Testament and in my Greek New Testament and get a lot of encouragement from that. But that's a little rough to do in a podcast. So I want to read from the ESV again, not because I think it's some kind of, you know, anointed uh, version. It's just what's right in front of me. So Paul says this starting in verse one. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now stop there for just a second. Isn't it interesting that when Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, and some versions say, I don't want you to be ignorant, it seems to be at those points that we tend to be the most uninformed. And I think that this chapter 12 on spiritual gifts, chapter 12 here in 1 Corinthians, is no exception to that. And so when Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed, I think there's a certain level, and of course it varies from person to person, but there's a certain level of having been uninformed. And then he continues, and he says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. 
All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I wanted to just start with reading that through and making a couple comments on it to kind of set the, uh, the stage for what I want to say in this episode. One of the things that really jumps out to me in this passage is that the Holy Spirit is sovereign in giving the gifts. At least twice in this chapter, Paul alludes to the fact that the Holy Spirit divvies up gifts to the assembly according to how he wills, according to his will, not ours. And so our giftedness, these spiritual gifts that we receive, which are to function within the body of Christ, are given to us sovereignly by His will. And the idea of a variety of gifts, of various types of gifts, is repeated throughout this chapter, that we're not all the same. We're not all a mouth. We're not all an ear. We're not all the eye. You know, and he's he's using these physical body parts to describe the body of Christ and how that, even though we're not all the same, we all have important functions. We're all indispensable to the body, to the assembly, to the ecclesia, to the body of Christ. And Paul's desire was to see each member functioning. Paul's desire was to see every spiritual gift functioning, not just a select few, but all spiritual gifts. And it's interesting that the end, toward the end of the chapter, when Paul is asking these questions, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? The construction in the Koine Greek language is such that the answer that is implied or the answer that is expected to those questions is no. 
So we could read it this way. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Or we could read it as, All are not apostles, are they? Or, All are not prophets, are they? Because the assumed response has to be no, grammatically speaking. We're not the same. We're different. And it's imperative that within the body of Christ that every part functions, that every part is operating. Because if one part isn't operating, the entire body hurts. The entire body is crippled to various degrees if every fun- every member isn't functioning according to the gifts that were given to them. Well, in our modern church cultures and in our modern ecclesiastical structures, every member functioning is inhibited. It's, in many cases, prohibited. What we have is a select few or, you know, one or two people that are allowed to speak, and it's usually on a Sunday morning. You know, we go to the Sunday event, and the high point of the event is the sermon, and the sermon is, is really, let's call it what it is, it's, it's a lecture. It's, it's, a, it's a monologue. It isn't a dialogue. It's a monologue where I'm hearing one person's opinion about things. You know, do an experiment. If you're sitting in that kind of environment and you want to see all of the gifts of all of the members operating, you know, be gutsy and, and try standing up and asking a question in the middle of the monologue. Or raise your hand and say, wait a second, I didn't really understand that. Could you say that again? Because I think that I might be disagreeing with you on that, and I'd, you know, I'd like to share my thoughts too. Try that and see what that gets you. You'll have someone show up at your you know, pew row or at your chair or whatever the, the setting is in to, to kind of quiet you down, and if they have to, to escort you out of the room, escort you out of the building. Because the Sunday lecture is designed for the Sunday lecture. The Sunday pulpit is the high point of the week. And if we interrupt that, we'll be marked out and probably removed from the service. And I'm using air quotes when I say service. Because the idea of that service isn't anywhere in the New Testament. And so the sermon really has become the pinnacle of the week. The monologue has become the pinnacle of the week. But you know, the idea of a sermon doesn't appear anywhere in the the New Testament. Our modern a version of the sermon, of the Sunday sermon, isn't in the New Testament. It isn't there. It doesn't exist. No one was doing that. That was introduced a, you know, a few hundred years later, and it really flourished under Constantine in the mid-third century. Fourth century, sorry. And under Constantine, when, the, when Christianity became the state religion, you know, and, and buildings were uh, paid for by the state, and everything became state-run, it was a state-run ecclesia, a state-run church, really, in the ecclesia started to disappear because it was replaced by this state-run church, and that's when the sermon really began to flourish. And the sermon became, became the pinnacle of the week. It became what the week was all about. And Sunday became the high holy day. But that isn't in the New Testament anywhere. That doesn't exist there. What exists in the New Testament is Paul's desire and the Holy Spirit's desire to see every, bo- every member of the body function. You think in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit was first given and the ecclesia started in earnest, they didn't immediately go out and try and find the pastor. That didn't happen. It was was every member functioning. It was living life together. It wasn't a structured assembly. It was meeting daily from house to house. 
it was living real life together. It wasn't some propped up thing where we're listening to a lecture once a week and, you know, then we go home and we think that, you know, we've somehow pleased God with that and that's what he required, but that's not what he requires. Tradition has given us that idea and we do it without questioning it. You know, I was reminded of this recently and there's a church, I opened up their website which, again, I hadn't seen in a long time. And and lo and behold, right there on the website, there was a video, and it said, Watch Live. Their service was still going, and there was a live message streaming. And so I clicked play because I wanted to see what was going on. I wasn't being critical. I really wasn't. So I clicked play, and as soon as I clicked play, of course, the, uh, the lead pastor was behind the pulpit talking, and he was talking about Lot's wife. And he was talking about how, as they were leaving Sodom, Lot's wife, of course, looked back. And God had said, when you leave, don't look back. And Lot's wife looked back. And when she did, she was turned into a a pillar of salt. And so his whole thing, as I watched it, and I only watched a couple minutes of it. I had to turn it off. But his whole thing, as he watched it, was the way he worded it, was Lot's wife became a monument to disobedience. Don't become a, a monument to disobedience. That's what was caught. Whether that was overtly taught or not, that's what it was that's what was caught. You too can be a monument of disobedience. And so make sure that you obey. And you know, whatever obey means in that context, which is going to be something that mostly serves the institution's needs, is going to be defined as obe- obedience and obeying. Well, you know, I didn't watch that for very long. I had to turn it off. So you've got one person up front, in this instance, one guy up front, who's talking about his opinion of an event and inserting us in it, asserting us into this event that happened, you know, thousands of years ago that that happened in a culture that no longer exists to a bunch of people that are no longer living. And somehow he he applies that to us, and and the message is, you know, don't look back or you'll become a monument to disobedience. And I thought, what does that mean? Don't look back. I look back all the time. I look back over my life and I see God's faithfulness. I look back over my life and I I see how I mess things up. But God is faithful. What does that mean? Don't look back. You know, it's almost like we think that, or the message that I picked up in that, whether or not, you know, like I said, I didn't watch it very long. But whether or not that was, you know, said later on or had been said earlier, I don't know. But what I caught out of that thing, just in the little bit of time that I was watching it, was looking back is equated with, you know, my old life before Christ or whatever. And man, if I look back at the world and I start liking what's in the world, that look out, I could become a monument for disobedience. But man, that turns a deaf ear to grace, doesn't it? That turns a deaf ear completely to being saved by grace and by grace alone. And, you know, I don't hear the message of grace. And and it's those similar things that we hear over and over again. And I'm like, where is Jesus in all of this? Where is grace in all of this? What does it mean, don't look back, or I'll become a, a monument of disobedience? What? I've been made obedient from the heart, and Christian, you have too. That's a work of the Spirit. Nothing can undo that. You've got new desires. Yeah, you sin. Yeah, you, you blow it. You make stupid decisions. I do too. But God's view of us is that we are the righteousness of God in Christ because he's made us so. The Holy Spirit has moved in, people, and you become obedient from the heart. That's what I want to hear. That's what I want to be reminded of because that's what I stray from. That's what I forget. 
and I get into a funk and I start looking at myself and I start looking at my circumstances. And wow, if I hear a message like that, that I can become a a monument for disobedience, that's just going to feed my funk, baby. That's all that's going to do. That's not going to encourage me. Well, the problem is, getting back to our conversation about the body of Christ and about, you know, the, the many members functioning, when I'm only allowed to hear one person's opinion, this is the kind of stuff that can happen. When I'm only allowed to listen to a lecture, to go to a Sunday event in order to listen, listen to a, a monologue, a lecture of someone's opinion about something that may be totally screwed up and may be totally off, but I have to submit to it anyway, there's something seriously wrong with our view of the body of Christ, of the ecclesia, of the assembly, where every member is to be functioning. We put one person on a pedestal, and we think that that one person has some kind of foo-foo dust sprinkled on them that allows them or has enabled them to have some kind of connection with God that the rest of us don't have. But that Sunday morning lecture is, is little more than one person's opinion. Remember, I was behind those closed doors. I was one of those pastors, and I can tell you there is no foo-foo dust. It doesn't exist. You know, we have our ordination councils, which, again, are a product of church history. They're nowhere in Scripture. But that has been used as a trump card to tell the lowly laity, the person in the pew, that, hey, we are the professional Christians, and we know what's going on, and you don't have the same connection with God that we do. I'm going to read a quote from Zen's book here in just a minute that reinforces that. But that's what we've been told, and we don't question it. We think, well, yeah, he's, he's, he's ordained. He listens, so am I. And nothing happened. There wasn't any foo-foo dust. I wasn't empowered beyond the person sitting next to me. I was not given some kind of spiritual insight or some kind of an amazing experience that the person next to me didn't have. We all have the Spirit. He doesn't give the Spirit by measure. Christian, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian in the first place, the Holy Spirit is in you. He's not going to get any closer to you than he already is. He's in you. How do you get closer than in? I don't have more of the Holy Spirit than you do because God doesn't give the Spirit with measure. He pours the Spirit out on all of us. We have all, by that one Spirit, as we read at the beginning of this podcast, been made into one body. We've all, by one Spirit, been gifted by that Spirit. We have different functions. There are many, many, many functions within the body of Christ. Many gifts within the body of Christ. But our current institutional structures prohibit that from happening. They prevent that from happening. And they, they lift up one person's gifts and make those gifts and make that one person the center of the assembly. But again, we don't find that in Scripture. That is nowhere in Scripture. And it's harmful to the body of Christ. I've had conversations with people, and you probably have too, uh, you know, about this kind of a thing, about the, you know, the Sunday event where you're staring at the back of someone's head and, you know, you spend your time there and then you leave and, and you think that, you know, God is, you've met some kind of requirement that God has for you. And as I've had conversations with the different people about that, especially those that, you know, are, are still there and are in that institutional setting, the idea will come up and they'll usually initiate it and they'll say, well, that's why we have small groups. We have small groups during the week. Uh, to kind of meet that whole need of what the assembly really is or what the church really is. Well, that's great. But then my question is, why are we going on Sunday? If the real ecclesia is happening in these small groups, 
then why do I, why is the pinnacle of the week a Sunday? And why is my attendance required on a Sunday to listen to a lecture of someone speaking about something who I may disagree with or they may just be wrong? What's the point? Why can't I just go to the small group and be a part of that? You know, let's let's make that the ecclesia and let's dissolve the other thing and so we don't have the you know, we don't have the bills, we don't have the mortgage, we don't have the electric utility bills on the building, you know, and all the staff salaries and all that kind of stuff and I know I'm hitting a sore a sore point there, but hey, I'm going to hit it anyway cuz that was me too. But if our small groups are where ecclesia is happening, What's the point in a Sunday lecture? Think about that. I'll just kind of let that sit out there and cook because what if instead of insisting that we have a Sunday lecture on top of our small groups, which we say is where Ecclesia is really happening, why not do away with Sunday and give people another day off? You know, most people are tired. Let's, let's let's give them a day off. Let's let them spend that day the way they want to. And let's let them spend that day with their families, their friends, their children, whatever. But let's let them be adults and let's give them another day off. Well, then we'll run right to Hebrews 10, don't we? You know, we take that out of context. Oh, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And we just ignore the context of the letter to the Hebrews. And we use that as our proof text. It's like we have it in our proof text arsenal. It's in our back pocket. We're ready to pull it out the minute someone challenges our view of the institutional church. Oh, you're forsaking your your assembling of other people. And, you know, we take that out of context and lay that on each other as a guilt trip. But that's not the point of that passage. Maybe sometime we can talk more about that. I know I've mentioned it in previous uh, podcasts, but that might be good to come back to. So what we get in the institutional setting is volunteers. Yeah, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of busy work. There's a lot of volunteering. Someone's got to take out the trash. Someone's got to sweep the sidewalks. You know, someone's got to do the nursery. And I'm not saying these things are bad in and of themselves. I'm just saying, what about spiritual gifts? What if my spiritual gift is in leadership, like Paul mentions in Romans 12? There's a gift of leadership. Where in that structure, unless I become part of the hierarchical structure of that institution, where is there opportunity to exercise that spiritual gift? If you have the gift of teaching, where is where is that opportunity to do that in a setting where the whole assembly benefits? You just don't. You don't get that opportunity. You might get it in a limited sense on occasion, but what about every time we meet? What about, you know, Paul's idea that when we come together, each one of us has a, has a psalm, a song, a gift. We have a spiritual gift to share. Not that we have to share it every time we meet, but that the opportunity should be available. It should present itself in the event that we want to. But in that top-down structure, there's no opportunity to do that, is there? It just doesn't exist. Okay, so I want to return our attention to Zen's book, A Church Building Every Half Mile subtitled, What Makes American Christianity Tick? And I'll mention again, I am really enjoying this book. I've enjoyed reading it. I've, I've enjoyed reading it a second time. And I recommend this book. I recommend it highly, especially if your journey is similar to mine, if you're on the same journey out of the institutional church, or if you're just starting to question things like, like I did for a couple of years before I stepped down from that position. This is a book that I think will really encourage you and you won't be able to read it fast enough. 
So I do recommend it. I'll put a link to it again in this episode so that you have it uh, readily available if you want to go purchase it. But section five of this book, which is on page 35, is entitled, Why Has Church Become So One-Part Driven? And right on this uh, first page, on page 35, Zenz includes a quote by David L. McKenna. And David L. McKenna says this, quote, The pastor is like the cerebellum, the center for communicating messages, coordinating functions, and conducting responses between the head and the body. The pastor is not only the authoritative communicator of the truth from the head to the body, but he is also the accurate communicator of the needs from the body to the head. End of quote. Man, there's so much wrong with that quote that <laughs> I almost don't know where to start. But I can just tell you this, that you know, we have this view of the pastor as being the cerebellum, as uh, Mr. McKenna notes here, the pastor being the, the cerebellum in the sense of the center for communicating messages and coordinating functions and conducting uh, responses between the head, Jesus, and the body. You know, this agrees with what we've talked about in past episodes as far as uh, Ignatius of Antioch. Remember him in around 110 AD or, you know, maybe as early as 107 AD. It depends on who you read. But Ignatius of Antioch had that famous quote that we've used on this podcast a number of times where he said, you know, if the bishop isn't present, don't let anything be done in the church apart from the bishop. And if the bishop isn't present, then you shouldn't be doing anything because he's the only one authorized to do stuff. And so there was this elevation of the bishop. And in the New Testament, as we've said in past episodes, you know, the the, the word bishop and elder and, and pastor uh, all refer to the same function within the assembly, all refer to the same group of people within the assembly. And so when we say bishop, you know, we think elder or we think pastor. The most common word used in the New Testament to describe these people and their function is probably the term elder. But a synonym of elder, of course, is that pastor function and uh, bishop. But these terms all refer to the same person within the assembly. That there's this gift given to the assembly of shepherds. And that these shepherds are addressed by various titles depending on the function that's being talked about that they should do. And so pastors oversee. They oversee the flock. They, they are the facilitators of the flock. They protect the flock from false teachers and from, from wolves, which Paul said are going to come from within you, not from without you. And so when Ignatius references bishops, he's talking about that group of people. And Ignatius said, let nothing be done in the assembly apart from the bishop. You know, the, the, only the bishop is authorized, he said, to do communion to baptize, to do, you know, other functions within the assembly. And if he's not there, I guess we just kind of twiddle our thumbs and, and wait for a bishop to show up to kind of show us what to do. But that's not the pattern that we see in the New Testament, is it? No, it isn't. We don't see that at all in the New Testament. We see gifts free-flowing. We see a, a group of everyday people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, who are out affecting the entire world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one's looking for the pastor. No one's looking for the bishop. It isn't happening. You know, church history, again, has given us this structure of top-down authority where we're not supposed to do anything within the assembly if, if the authority isn't there. Well, let me suggest this, that the authority is there. His name is Jesus. And the Spirit of Christ is within you. And the New Testament tells us that because the Spirit of Christ is within you, 
that he has qualified you to do these things. Well, what's happened is we've institutionalized so much of this stuff that the Lord's Supper has moved from a meal to a sacrament. It's moved from a a full meal, a love feast, to a little cup of juice and a flavorless wafer. And something that's only to be administered by someone up front. And again, this is given to us by church history. Well, McKenna's quote reinforces that when he said the pastor is not only the authoritative communicator of the truth from the head to the body, he is also the accurate communicator of the needs from the body to the head. In other words, the pastor is your mediator, people. It's Ignatius on steroids. The pastor is your mediator. He knows what you need, and so he tells God. He knows what God wants, and so he tells you. In other words, he becomes a mini-pope of sorts. And our individual institutional church settings become many Roman Catholic settings where we have a priest communicating to God for us and communicating from God to us. But that's not the ecclesia, is it? And again, I can tell you that, you know, being one of these, one of the ordained pastors in my past, that I had no special insight that you didn't have. I had no special uh, gateway to God that you don't enjoy too. It wasn't there. But tradition has told us that it's there. And so we believe that it's there. And so we put these people up on pedestals and we say, oh, they must know what they're talking about because after all, they're the professional Christian. But that is the major obstacle to every member contributing to every member functioning, which is what the ecclesia is. I think McKenna's quote, which reinforces Ignatius' quote from 110 AD, does nothing more than put an unnecessary mediator between Christ and his people. You know, the scripture tells us that there's one mediator and that that one mediator is none of us. He's Jesus Christ and him crucified who's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you right now by his resurrected life. I don't know about you, but I'm not ready to trade that for a human pastor who is behind a pulpit giving his opinion once a week on what he thinks I should be doing or what he thinks the Bible is about. I want to give you one more quote that's in uh, Zen's book here, and then we'll close up this episode. And uh, we're still in section five, and I'm on page 40, where near the bottom of that page, he he quotes uh, C. Peter Wagner. And I'm not familiar with C. Peter Wagner, but Mr. Wagner summarizes, he says, the typical perspective on how a pastor shapes the life of a church. And he says this, quote, The army has only one commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. The local church is like a company with one company commander, the pastor, who gets his orders from the commander-in-chief. The company commander has lieutenants and sergeants under him for consultation and implementation, but the final responsibility for decisions is that of the company commander, and he must answer to the commander-in-chief. The pastor has the power in a growing church. The pastor of a growing church may appear to outsiders as a dictator, but to the people of the church, his decisions are their decisions. End of quote. So the local church, in this quote, is like a company with one company commander, the pastor, who gets his orders from the commander-in-chief, who is Jesus, who is God. And so, again, I've got the pastor running interference between me and Jesus, and he's the one getting his orders from the commander-in-chief, who in this context, again, is Jesus. And then this commander, this pastor, has lieutenants and sergeants under him for consultation and implementation 
But the final responsibility for decision-making is that of the pastor, and he must answer to the commander-in-chief. The pastor has the power in a growing church. And I'm like, wow, you know, this chapter and verse, please. Any reference to Scripture is missing in this gentleman's uh, opinion of what the church is, of what the ecclesia is. Chapter and verse. This describes a power struggle within the assembly. It doesn't describe anything that's within Scripture that tells me what the assembly is or how it should be functioning. He makes a statement here that the pastor of a growing church may appear to outsiders as a dictator. Well, that's what he is. He's dictating what's going on. You know, I wrote an article, and I, I think I mentioned it in a previous podcast, too, that of a, of a tweet that appeared a while back in my Twitter feed that said something like, wherever the pulpit is going is where the church is going. And, you know, I'd spent some time working through that a little bit and realized that, well, at least they're consistent in saying that because that's true in most institutional church settings, that wherever the pulpit is going, that's kind of where the whole assembly is going. And, and this uh, quote here is saying the same thing. The pastor of a growing church may appear to outsiders as a dictator. Well, you know, call a spade a spade. That's what's going on. He is a dictator in that setting. He is determining where things are going as the CEO. But the emphasis on one person and that one person being the pastor is, again, absent in the New Testament. It doesn't exist. It's not an accurate description of what the ecclesia is. Far from it. It prohibits the operation of the gifts of everyone within the ecclesia. And that kind of view of the church, of the ecclesia, leads again to, as I've said in previous episodes, the use of honorific titles to set these people apart. And we have this clergy-laity distinction, which we've talked about some and we will be coming back to, of the separation of the professional class of Christian from the non-professional class of Christian. And one of the ways that we separate them is not only physically by putting someone behind a pulpit on a stage, but also in the use of honorific titles. So we have Pastor so-and-so, or we have Bishop so-and-so, or we have Right Reverend so-and-so, or we have you know Ultra Bishop so-and-so, who's over other bishops, and the hierarchical structure just gets crazy some of the time. And our use of honorific titles contributes to that. It contributes to the separation of us and them of the professional Christian from the laity. The term laity needs to be jettisoned when we use it in reference to someone who's less than someone else. Because within the assembly, we're all the laity, we're all the laos, we're all the people of God. Within the assembly, we're all the clergy, we're all the kleros, we're all God's inheritance. The words clergy and laity in the New Testament refer to the entire assembly, not to certain segments of it or to a special class of it but to the entire assembly. But honorific titles are just one more way that separate you from me. Well, this is Pastor Joe. This is Pastor John. You know, Paul called himself an apostle. When Paul would introduce himself, he would say, Paul, an apostle. An apostle of Jesus Christ according to the will of God. You know, Paul, an apostle. And so when Paul would introduce himself, he would, he would use the term apostle, which is what he was gifted to do, obviously, as a descriptor not as an honorific title. By that I mean this. There's a huge difference between saying the Apostle Paul and Paul an Apostle. Paul an Apostle describes his function within the ecclesia. The Apostle Paul is an honorific title, and Paul never did that when he, did, when he described himself or introduced himself. He said, I'm an Apostle. He didn't say, I'm the Apostle Paul. 
there are friends and people in my life who I know have gifts of shepherding, gifts of pastoring. They're pastors. But I'll not call them Pastor Paul or Pastor Peter or Pastor Poindexter. I'll not use an honorific title for a function. And that function really is one function among many, many, many functions that need to be happening within the ecclesia, within the body of Christ. But we use honorific titles to separate ourselves and to distinguish between the professional and the non-professional. But as I said earlier in this podcast, there's no foo-foo dust. There's nothing been sprinkled on your pastor that has made him or her more insightful of God's will than you are. Church tradition has told us that that's true, and we don't question it. Well, people, I want to encourage you to start questioning it. That's about all I have for you in this episode 14 of the Unsunday Show. I'm really glad that you joined me. Next time that we do this, we'll continue in Zen's book, A Church Building Every Half Mile. We'll go into the next section and see what we can glean out of that and use that as a springboard for conversation. Hey, I'd love to hear from you. My web address is unsunday.com, unsunday.com. I have a contact form there that you can fill out and send that to me and tell me a little bit about yourself, your story. I'd love to hear from you and make use of that. So I appreciate you guys listening. Appreciate you tuning in. If you like what's going on here, please pass this along and tell others about it. And if you would, slide over to iTunes and give me a review. I'd appreciate that as well. So until next time, y'all. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.